Okay. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And as we uh, approach it this morning, we pray that you would open up our minds to be able to understand what we are reading. But more than that, Lord, that your spirit would help it to become applicable to our lives, that there might be a lesson for us all to be able to take away, uh, to help strengthen our faith in you and take us forward in our walk and our relationship one with another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're continuing our study in the book of Joshua. Uh, we're in Joshua chapter 2 uh, this morning, and we're going to do the whole chapter. What I'll do is I'll read Joshua chapter 2 to you, so we will have it fresh in our minds, and then we'll go into it verse by verse and see what the Lord has to say for us. Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 to 24. Now Joshua, the son of uh, Nun, sent out two men from Shittim to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the women took the two men and hid them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened at the, as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, Neither did there remain in any more uh, remain any more courage in any one because of you, for the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token, and spare my father, my mother, my brothers and my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her. Our lives for your lives, if none of you tell this business of ours. And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterwards you may go your way. Then the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear. Unless we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers and all your father's household to your own home. So it should be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. Then she said, According to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window, and then they departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over, and they came to Joshua the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. So last time we saw that uh, God spoke to Joshua and God had commissioned Joshua to be the successor of Moses and the leader of Israel. And God had given two commands to Joshua. The first was to go over this Jordan. And the second is to lead Israel to the land which I am giving them. Long time they had been wandering in the wilderness, but now was the time for them to cross over the Jordan and to go into the land which I am giving to them. 
This is exactly the same words that uh, uh, God had spoken to Moses that, you know, I'm going to this the land to which I'm giving them. But they hadn't come into the fullness of the promise because of their lack of faith. But here we see a whole new generation ready to come in, to come into the fullness of God's promise, to come into the land uh, that God was giving them. And God had promised Joshua two things. The first was no man shall be able to stand before you. And the second is you shall divide as an inheritance the land. So here was a guarantee of victory for Joshua and the children of Israel, that no man shall be able to stand before you. But the question is, would they trust the word of the Lord? Would they act in faith to what God had said? Because all the promises of the word of God are useless if we don't act upon them and put put our faith in them. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, only if we respond to them in faith. The promise there to Joshua was, you shall divide as an inheritance the land. This not only guaranteed Joshua victory in the land, but said that he would live long enough to be able to be the one to divide the land between the various tribes. What a wonderful promise for Joshua to have if he walks in faith and obedience to that promise. And God had charged uh, Joshua with two things as well. The first was, that the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. So he was not only to follow the voice of God, he was to follow the word of God. And that is an important lesson for us all to learn, that we don't just follow the writings of the word of God, we need to follow the voice of God, the leading of his Holy Spirit as well. And the second thing that uh, God charged Joshua was, be strong and very courageous. So God said three times to Joshua, be strong and very courageous, which tells us that he didn't feel strong and he didn't feel particularly courageous. But we but we in moving forward in what God has called us, what God has gifted us to need to have that strength and courage, not based upon who we are, but upon who God is. He is made strong in our weakness. And what's very interesting is that once Joshua had communicated these things to the officers uh, of the armies of Israel, they came back to Joshua and said, Joshua, be strong and very courageous. The people confirmed the word of the Lord to Joshua. So, now, as also a reminder of where we'd been before, Joshua 1 verse 11, uh, we read that Joshua commanded his officers, pass through the camp and command the people, saying, prepare provisions for yourselves, For within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now this is, that's Joshua 1 verse 11. And what is wonderful about this, there is no hesitation or compromise on the part of Joshua. He is fully sold out to God. He gave an explicit command to prepare. He told the people to get ready. And he made it indisputably clear, you will cross this Jordan. And he issued an unequivocal deadline within three days. There was no messing with Joshua. He got down to business straight away. He stood upon the word of God and he prepared the people to stand upon the word of God as well. And remember, once before, Joshua had been within spitting distance of the promised land. Once before, Joshua was ready to cross the Jordan and press into the fullness of God's blessings and promises. But sadly, once before, Joshua's plans were frustrated by the fear of the children of Israel. As far as Joshua was concerned, this was not going to happen again. He had the ambition and expectation of a man who had been waiting for this moment for 40 years. He had the sanction and the approval of the Lord God of Israel. Nothing was going to stop him now. Now, I think it's useful background information for us to go back to remember what happened some 38 years before when spies had previously been spent into land. And uh, if not useful information, certainly interesting information. And if you don't find it interesting, well, you're out of luck. We're going to Numbers 13, verses 1 to Numbers 14, verse 38. We don't have to read that, but that's the passage where it talks about the spies being sent into the promised land under Moses. And so 30 years before, Moses had sent out 12 men. 
And he said in Numbers 13 verse 2, to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. So the promise had been there some 38 years before. I'm giving the children of Israel this land, but I'm going to send out spies. And a spy was taken from each of the tribes of Israel, a leader from each of the tribes of Israel. And they spent 40 days making a survey of the land, taking note of its geography, its people, its cities, gathering all the possible information that could be required for an invasion. And upon returning, they presented their findings to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel. Now, they did bring back a good report of the land. They said it truly flows with milk and honey. That's Numbers 13 verse 27. But they also brought back a bad report with them as well about their prospects concerning the enemy. They said in Numbers 13 verse 28, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. So although they saw that it was a good land, they saw that the people were strong. The cities are just massive. They're just, I don't know how we're going to get around them. They're impregnable. They're large. And what's more, we saw giants in the land as well. And so fear started to consume the children of Israel. And this was a public report told to absolutely everybody. But what's more, because there was a spy from each tribe, each spy could go back to their own tribe and continue to stir up that fear in the people. The only two, two people that were not full of fear and were full of faith was Joshua and Caleb. And Caleb had said, oh, let us go up at once and take possession. But the ten said, we're not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And the public report by the ten spies inspired a public outcry. And we read there in Numbers 13 that fear consumed the children of Israel. They cried and wept all night, we're told. A bunch of Nancys. And they wished they had died in Egypt. A kind of woe is me type attitude. And this fear gave way to rebellion in their hearts. They started to murmur against Moses and Aaron and they wanted to turn into a democracy and elect a new leader to supplant Moses and they wanted to go back to Egypt. Now in response to this the Lord spoke and he gave two sentences over the children of Israel. The first sentence was Israel would not enter the promised land at this time but Israel would be sentenced to walk the wilderness for 40 years. If you remember, the spies had spied out the land for 40 days. And for each day that the spies had been in the land, there would be a corresponding year that they would wander around the wilderness. They'd already spent two years in the wilderness. They still, they, to fulfil that 40 years, there was 38 more years ahead of them. And the second uh, sentence that God proclaimed against Israel because of their fear and their rebellion was that um, all the rebellious voices above the age of 20 would perish in the wilderness. And it would take 38 years for the unbelieving generation to die. 38 years of funerals every day as this unbelieving generation perished. But... For the ten unfaithful spies who had spoken fear into the hearts of the people, they would perish immediately. And a plague fell upon those ten spies and they died almost immediately as a result of their lack of faith. The only exemptions to these two sentences was Caleb and Joshua because they were children of faith. There is only one prescription for the old, unbelieving, rebellious man. It cannot be reformed. It cannot turn over a new life. It must die. And all the old, unbelieving, rebellious people died in the wilderness. And only the new man, the new generation, the believing generation, can inherit the promised land and can inherit the fullness of God 
And it was this new believing generation, this new man that was going to enter in to the fullness of all that God had for them. So with a few days ahead before crossing the Jordan, we see that Joshua dispatches spies. In verse 1, Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from Shittim to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. Now Joshua's spies are different to Moses' spies. Joshua's, uh, sorry, Moses' 12 spies had one from each tribe, which will, uh, which will uh, gather intelligence. But, of course, there being 12 people, there's a much greater chance for gossip as well. With two spies, it would be much easier to control the intelligence. Much easier to keep tabs upon things so it doesn't spread like wildfire, the report that they get back. The second thing we learn is that the 12 spies, 38 years before, were sent out and reported back publicly. And because it was a public report and because they were sent out publicly, Moses was not in control of the intelligence. But here, under Joshua, he set the two spies out secretly. So only he was aware that they were being sent out. And when they came back, they would report directly to him and not to the people. So that whatever intelligence they brought back, he was in control of that information so that fear wouldn't spread through the camp like it had done before. Also, the 12, uh, uh, the 12 spies engaged in a nationwide reconnaissance mission and brought back a full report. These two engaged in a local recce with just a brief report. Joshua just wanted to see what was the other side of the Jordan to get an idea of what Jericho was like specifically and what the mood and the temperature of the people were. You see, Jericho was the doorway to the rest of the country. Jericho was deemed perhaps the most fortified uh, of all the cities. If they could get, if they could defeat Jericho, then they could get into the land and everything else was going to be progressively easier beyond that. Previously, Israel had been overwhelmed with the enormity of what lay ahead. The land was too big, the people too great, the faith required too great. But Joshua wisely focused solely upon the singular task that laid ahead. One city is achievable, one group of people manageable, and the faith required is much more plausible. And that's exactly the way that God leads us as a people and as a congregation. He leads us one step at a time. He asks us to have faith for today, to have faith for that present task that's before us, not about the whole land that lies ahead of us, but that singular first task that lies ahead to focus upon what he has given to us and to not be concerned about the big picture. He worries about the big picture. We are just to worry about what God has given us to do. Matthew six thirty four says, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We just need to be concerned about today and what God has called us to do. I was reminded of that uh, the verse from that hymn. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thou no dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. We just need to be sure that we've got strength for today. And bright hope for tomorrow. And that strength for today comes by spending time with the Lord. Reading his word and being sure that you're walking out in the spirit. Worry about that, having strength for today and that you will have hope for tomorrow because God will take care of that. And so we read in the latter part of verse one. So they went and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and lodged there. Now, no doubt Joshua would have dispatched righteous, godly men, men of faith and good standing. So why then do they lodge at the house of a prostitute? That doesn't seem like a, a godly, righteous place to be. Well, the answer is quite simple. Cover. They needed a cover story. I do believe that they, these men were strong and courageous, just as God, as God had commanded Israel to be. And I, I, I imagine them going in in disguise, walking through the streets of Jericho, uh, acting perhaps as, as merchants or sojourners, and they assess the walls. 
They assessed the people and the land that lay ahead, but what they needed was cover for the night. Now, where would a traveller typically spend the night? They would spend a night in an inn. And uh, this is an inn here uh, on the city wall. And uh, the, um, the, taver the taverner, the owner, the landlady, is this lady Rahab, who just happens to be a prostitute as well. So if you so chose, you could go there and have a, have a meal, have a bed, and you could have some female company if you were so inclined. But if you think about it, if you wanted to take the temperature of the city, if you wanted to know what the latest gossip is, what was on the minds and the mouths of all the people, where's the best place to go? Would it not be the local pub? To go there and uh, order yourself a Coke and just settle down and listen to what everybody else is talking about. Then you'll be able to get the lowdown upon what everybody's talking about. And this is what I kind of think that these spies are doing. I don't think it's a case of, uh, while the cat's away, the mice will play. I think it's a case of Proverbs 27, verse 12. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. And these were prudent men. They saw the evil all around them. So they hid themselves in uh, plain sight within this tavern. And let's be in no doubt as to the character of Rahab. She was a prostitute. Um, I know that many Jewish writers try to soften her to say that she was merely an innkeeper because that word there in um, Joshua 2 can be used to describe an innkeeper. But every time that Rahab is uh, just, uh, spoken of in the New Testament, the word prostitute or harlot is attached to her and there is that is unequivocally what it's been spoken about. So she ran a business, she ran an inn, but she was also a prostitute as well. Going on to verses two and three, and it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Now, the land of Canaan was made up of city-states, lots of walled cities, each with their own ruler and king. And here we have Jericho, and Jericho is an oasis in a hot desert air region. It is something like 275 um, uh, metres below sea level, and it has its own microclimate. Um, the weather is always good there. It has natural springs, it has a palm forest, and it would have drawn many visitors because of its beautiful region. And archaeological evidence shows us that this city occupied approximately nine acres of land, and had double walls and uh, the double walls were about 15 feet 4 to uh, 4.5 meters apart and prime real estate within Jericho was located living in these in these walls or on these walls so when we think about Rahab she had a house on this city wall we find out in verse 15 Rahab um, was in the uh, the best location in the land and she was in the best house in that land she had done very well for herself prostitution clearly pays not that i would advocate that as a career choice uh, but she lived in the best house in the best region of canaan but she gave up what she could not keep for that which she could not lose she was willing to give up the best house in the best location for salvation in god and that's a lesson to us that our greatest prize, our greatest treasure should be in the Lord God Almighty, not in the things that this world has to offer. Mark 8 verse 36 says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world but lose his soul? So the king of Jericho was well aware of Israel encamped on the other side, on the east side of the Jordan. And the city would have been on high alert because of this. And a report gets back to the king. Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. Now, whether the spies were spotted by the watchman or a two man canoe was found by the west side of the Jordan River or whether it was just fellow frequenters of Rahab's inn had spotted the strangers and reported back to the king. We're not sure. What we do know is the king issues an arrest order via some men 
to Rahab. And the word but from the king is emphatic. Bring out the men. But the word is also explanatory. For they have come to search out all the country. And the fact that the word is explanatory suggests that the king um, wanted to inform Rahab. He assumed that Rahab was ignorant of her part in um, having these people within her inn. And it also suggests that Rahab was maybe a trusted member of the community. Anyway, she being a trusted member of the community, she would not inhabit, sorry, knowingly hide criminals. And once they had become known to her, she would do the right thing, surely. She would surely do the right thing by the king of Jericho. Well, let's read verses four and five. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. Rahab does not do the right thing by way of the king of Jericho. She hides the two men on the roof and she lies to the men at the door. But in so doing, Rahab took her life in her hands. She To knowingly conceal the spies would be treason and no doubt a crime worthy of capital punishment. Rahab does do the right thing, however, by way of the king of kings. She demonstrates faith in the God of the spies and she demonstrates faith in the mission of the spies. And here we see the beginning of the saving faith of Rahab. Now, there's a question here. If there was something of a saving faith inside of Rahab, how then can we explain her bold-faced lying? Notice she says, um, uh, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Lie. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Lie. And uh, pursue them quickly for you may overtake them. Lie. She was just lying through her teeth. Now this is a question with perhaps not so much of a clearer answer as I would like. Some say she was a pagan in a pagan world. So we shouldn't blame her for doing as a pagan does. She had not yet been exposed to the law of God. And she wasn't uh, as yet uh, fully incorporated in the people of Israel. So maybe that explains why she lied. Some say she was a new believer and so we need to go easy on her. But I've got to say, I do find myself, if I'm completely honest, asking what would I do in that scenario? And I was thinking about those situations when if you were living in occupied Europe during the Second World War, and you were hiding Jews in your house and the Germans came knocking, would you give them up or would you lie to them and say, no, there's no Jews here? I've got to be honest, I would lie my face off to protect the lives of those Jews. And so I find a sympathy there with Rahab. But while this might be uh, an ethical question without a clear answer, and I'd be interested to hear what people have to say afterwards, God, in nowhere in this passage does God approve of Rahab's lies. What God does approve of is Rahab's faith. And we should never use this passage as a justification for lying. And of course, we could go down a rabbit's warren of thought on the matter uh, of how we should act, but it would lead us nowhere. The passage should not be used as an excuse or defence for lying. The scripture is very clear. Exodus twenty sixteen, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. But moving on, verses six and seven. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as they, those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So the spies were hidden on the roof among the stalks of flax. Uh, Rahab uh, could not be sure if her testimony to the men at the door would be enough. So she made preparations should the house be searched. As it turned out, uh, that was not necessary. Now, why was there stalks of flax upon the roof? Well, flax is used to make linen and flax is also used in the dyeing trade as well. And there's a number of commentators here that suggest that Rahab, as well as being an innkeeper and a prostitute, 
was involved in making linen and dyeing linen as well, which makes her quite the entrepreneur. So she had a little cottage industry running from the top of her house as well. And uh, that would make sense, her having a house on the city wall, because all the um, merchants and traders would go to and fro from their past her house. They would go into the inn for some food and lodging, and there she'd engaged in some trade with these merchants with her linen and her dyes. What this shows is this is a woman with a strong work ethic, an independent-minded woman. And uh, later on in history, we're going to find that she gives birth to a son called Boaz. And she parks this, this strong work ethic onto her son, because we know that Boaz was a hard-working, industrious and godly man too. But the men who had questioned Rahab on behalf of the king now leave the city, pursue the spies in the direction Rahab had indicated, and the city gates are locked shut behind them. The city is in lockdown for the night, and uh, I suppose also in lockdown to guard against potential infiltration from the Israelites. Reading on from verse 8. So before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, but the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, and neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now with the coast clear and the king's men's gone, Rahab ventures to the roof to speak to the two Israelites. And the testimony that she gives is a grade A piece of prime intelligence for these spies. But it's also a testimony which is a grade A statement of faith. Notice there in verse 11 she says, Because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This is a woman that has rejected the idols of Canaan and is believing in the one and true living God. It's almost as if she's been waiting for an opportunity to be able to get out of this city and follow the true living God. Now, five times, five times in these verses, she uses the name of the Lord Jehovah, the name of the one true God. You know, you go to some home groups and they don't mention the name of the Lord that many times. This is the model for salvation. She not only believes with her heart, but she confesses with her lips. She confesses the name of the Lord with her lips. Now, what's interesting to me is uh, in verse nine, she starts off and she says to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know. Uh, and then in verse 10, it continues, for we have heard. We have heard. So she starts with I know. And faith starts with hearing. That statement, I know, is a statement of absolute faith. And faith starts with hearing. So she, we have heard. She starts by hearing the report. Then, then after hearing, faith is birthed with believing. And after, faith, after uh, believing, faith is confirmed by confessing. And we see that confession with her lips. Faith is then validated by acting. And we've seen her acting by hiding these spies. And then faith is completed by knowing. And we see that there's a deep knowing within inside Rahab. There's been a deep work already performed in her life. You know, too many Christians speak with a language of vague uncertainty. They say, well, I, I feel God is leading me here. Or I think maybe God is saying this. Or I feel this is the way we should go. But look at the faith of Rahab here. She says, I know we should be Christians getting to that place of absolute certainty where we're saying, I know God has said, I know God is leading. I know that place of fully matured faith. So she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. How does she know this? Where has she heard this bit of information? It's amazing what God can reveal to somebody with a heart of faith. I believe that God revealed to her that God, that the land has been given to the children of Israel. 
What's more, we read, she says, I know that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. No doubt Jericho have heard and can see the vast number of Israelites on the bank of the Jordan. And let's be clear, there's somewhere between two to three million Jews on the other side of the Jordan. They can see, Jericho can see that they are outnumbered. So that fear is natural. But for the entire land to be gripped with fear, that has got to be supernatural. For the entire land to be filled with fear, that is a supernatural act of God. 38 years previous, it was the 10 spies and the children of Israel who had terror fall on them. Now the tables have turned and it's the Canaanites who have terror fall on them. And what changed in Israel over the preceding years was their perspective of God. If you have a big God, you have little enemies. But if you have big enemies, you have a little God. Israel's God had magnified in their eyes and in their perspective over the, over the preceding 38 years. God had become bigger and their enemies had become smaller. But the converse work had happened in Canaan. Their God had got smaller and their enemies had got bigger in their sight. You know, this fear that we see within the, children, within the people of Canaan had been prophetically uh, spoken of by Moses in the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15. In Exodus chapter 15, verses 11 to 18, we read, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Palestina. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You'll bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign for ever and ever. So Moses had prophetically foreseen this fear to fall upon them. Now, when looking at Rahab's faith, in contrast to Canaan's fear, all these hinge upon the same two facts. One fact is in the distant past, and one fact is in the recent past. The fact, uh, or the root of this faith and fear in the distant past, was uh, God's deliverance of uh, Israel from Egypt and their crossing of the Red Sea, which is spoken of in these verses. And the fact in the recent past was the defeat of Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. Moses had offered terms of peace to Sion, king of Heshbon, but he had retaliated by manoeuvring his army against Israel. Likewise, Og had met Israel with his army. Israel had utterly defeated both kings of the Amorites and killed all their people, appropriated uh, their property, and the land that they once occupied was now in the possession of the tribes of Reuben, Gad and Manasseh. This recent battle campaign and victory served to instill fear in the hearts of the Canaanites, but it served to put faith in the heart of Rahab. Jericho slowly became less of a home to her and more of a prison, a place that she was looking to escape, and Israel was the key to that. That fear was generated also by the crossing of the Red Sea some 40 years ago. And this tells us that in the same time that God was building up the faith of Israel over those 40 years during the wilderness, God was building up the fear in the Canaanites. For 40 years they'd been thinking about this God who had brought Israel across the Red Sea and it caused fear to grow and grow and grow. Now Rahab had not witnessed the crossing of the Red Sea but she believed. Many Israelites had experienced the crossing of the Red Sea, but were unbelieving. And it reminds me of what we see in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith, 
and not by sight. Isn't it incredible that Rahab had not witnessed the crossing of the Red Sea, but she still believed and it stirred up faith within her. But many of those who'd crossed the Red Sea were not believing and they perished there in the wilderness. Rahab was a woman that walked in faith. Reading verses 12 to 14. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. And spare my father uh, and my mother, my brothers, my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, our lives for your lives. If none of you tell this business of ours and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. So Rahab pleads for her life and the lives of her immediate family. And we read that she has a father and a mother. She has brothers and sisters. But of course, she has no husband or children, which is what you'd expect from a prostitute. Now, the concern for her family and the desire to see them saved shows us that Rahab not only walked in faith, but she also walked in love. And Rahab wanted a sign, a distinguishing mark. She asks for a token um, and give me a true token, she says at the end of verse 12. And what the men gave her was a binding oath. They said, our, uh, our life for your life. And for her, their word is sufficient. She trusts the words of these spies. And no doubt she would not let them go unless she was satisfied that their word was trustworthy and reliable. And so we read in verses 15 and 16. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, and she dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterwards, you may go your way. So Rahab's house was on the wall of the house. And it would seem she had a window that opened out to the country. She had a countryside uh, villa, which is wonderful. No chance of uh, a new housing estate being built in her plain sight, as we get a lot of that happening around Maystone at the moment. And uh, she had every opportunity to be able to drop these or lower these spies down on a rope. Uh, and as she does so, she gives one final word of counsel. How she knows this, I don't know. She's obviously in the know. But then again, if you run an innkeeper, you're running in, you're going to hear all the latest news anyway. But she says that uh, you need to wait three days in the rock, in the mountains uh, before you can get back to your people safely. Now, if you look at pictures of Jericho, there are rocks and hills and mountains that surround Jericho. And these rocks, hills and mountains would have been a safe refuge until the danger of these pursuers had passed. And so she says to them, wait three days. So reading on from verse 17, then the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers and all your father's household to your own house. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our, on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. And then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. <clears throat> So as they're parting, they say, we're going to give you this red cord. You need to tie on your window. It's a marker so that we know that this house will not be destroyed. And everybody that comes into this house will be safe. If they come out of this safe, then their blood's not on our hand. And so. Uh, <clears throat> so she gets this bit of marker and she puts it on the window. Everyone within the house will be saved. Everybody outside of the house uh, will be lost. The scarlet cord is the marker for salvation. Now for somebody who deals in flax and dyed material, a scarlet cord is a rather incongruous item to see hanging from the window, but that which is incidental to some. Sorry, that, but that which is incidental to some is essential to others. Many would care less about this scarlet cord, but for Rahab it was a matter of life or death. 
No wonder she ties it to the window without delay. And isn't it interesting, many in the world will look upon our faith as incidental, but for us it is essential, it is the foundation of who we are. Many would care less for our faith, but for us is a matter of life and death. And uh, why the spies had a length of scarlet cord with them, I don't know. But we do know that the scarlet cord is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, specifically in Leviticus and Numbers. In Leviticus 14 verse 4, the scarlet was used in the cleansing of a leper. And of course, Rahab would have been like a leper to the Israelites, but the scarlet cord indicated that she was cleansed. In Leviticus 14 verse 51, scarlet was used in the cleansing of a leprous house. And Rahab's house would have been seen like a leprous house to the Israelites, but the scarlet cord on the window would indicate that this was considered a cleansed and pure house. Of course, I, I think that the greatest miracle in the fall of Jericho, which we'll see in a few chapters time, is not that the walls fell down, but that Rahab's house stayed up. I think that's quite wonderful. And then in Numbers 19 verse 6, we read about how scarlet was used in the burning of a red heifer to create the waters of purification. Ordinary Rahab would be considered unclean due to her nationality and her occupation. But Rahab would be deemed purified to the Israelites because of this red cord. First century believers uh, such as Clement of Rome, Justin Martin, Irenaeus uh, looked on the scarlet cord as a symbol of the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And as the blood of the Passover lamb marked the houses of the Israelites uh, when uh, on the day of the Passover, and ensured their salvation. So this scarlet cord marked the house of Rahab and ensured her salvation as well. Joshua would come and he would be a saviour to Rahab, but he would be a judge to the rest of Jericho. We know that when Jesus comes, he will be a saviour to those who trust him and a judge to those who reject him. And then the last couple of verses then they departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but they did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain and crossed over and they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. So the spies put their lives into the hands of Rahab, both in the security of her house and in the security of her advice, and she has proved faithful and true. After three days, they've returned safely to the camp of Israel, and they present their report privately to Joshua, who was probably, I don't know, I imagine Joshua like a World War I general pouring over a map of the Promised Land, uh, considering what lies ahead. And this reconnaissance report ultimately proved useless because the Lord would deliver a military strategy counterintuitive to the mind of the natural man and would bring a decisive victory. But the additional report about the state of mind of the population was immeasurably important with regards to morale. The faith of the spies and the whole nation would be boosted by the news that, that the whole land of Canaan were faint-hearted and fearful of the children of Israel and the God of the children of Israel. And that faith would prove essential as they prepared to cross the Jordan. When Joshua sent the two spies, God had two great purposes. The first was to boost the faith of Israel and the second was to honour the faith of Rahab. It was not by chance that these spies called upon and stayed at Rahab's um, inn. This was the providence of God, the hand of God guiding them. And if you want the Lord to be mobilised in your direction, to intercede in your life, to move, then move toward him in faith. Faith is what prompted God to send those spies into the land and uh, cause them to stay at Rahab's house, the faith of Rahab. God sent two men across a desert, over a raging river, into enemy territory, to the house of the most unlikely person, in the face of incredible danger, to bring one woman and her family to salvation. And it was Rahab's faith that caused God to act in such a way. Do you know someone who seems impossible to reach for salvation?
they seem beyond the reach of the hand of God like Rahab, then remember Rahab and that it was faith that brought salvation. Move towards God in faith and prayer. Pray for that individual. Faith can turn around events like you can't believe. Isaiah 59 verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear that it cannot hear. Faith is what moves the hand of God. Now, <clears throat> Rahab's mentioned a couple of times in the New Testament. So quickly wrapping up here. There is a hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11. And there are only two women named in this hall of fame. The first is Sarah and the second is Rahab. Sarah was a godly woman, founder of the Hebrew race. And God used her dedicated body uh, to bring Isaac into the world. Rahab, on the other hand, was an ungodly Gentile woman. She worshipped pagan gods and she sold her body for money. From a human viewpoint, they shared nothing in common. But from a divine viewpoint, they shared the most important thing in life, faith towards the true and living God. Faith is what united these two women. And here Rahab is heralded as an example of faith in the Hall of Fame of Hebrews 11. James declares in James 2 verse 17, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And he uses two people to illustrate this principle. The first is Abraham, the great archetype of faith in scripture. And the second person he uses is Rahab, who demonstrated faith towards God by receiving the spies and protecting them. You know, scripture associates Rahab with the Messiah also in Matthew 1 verse 5. In the genealogy that leads to the birth of uh, Messiah, we see that Rahab was the mother of Boaz and she was the great great grandmother of King David. And of course, she is the great ancestor of Jesus Christ. Great faith can bring you right in to the family of Messiah. And it is our faith that brings us into the family of Messiah. So Rahab went from a lady of the night to a lady of the light. She went from a house of shame to the hall of fame, all due to her faith. And our faith in Jesus Christ will elevate our lives also, all the way to the throne room of God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that which we have read this morning. We pray, Lord, that the example of Rahab's faith would stay with us and resonate with us, that we would move towards you with faith, that, Lord, we would know that it is not through excessive service and trying to give office, uh, continuous sacrifices, but it's through believing that we're able to draw close to you and bear fruit for you. Amen. <laughs>